0: Before I got here, I I was a youth pastor in Kentucky, and um, my students in my youth group, they knew that I love really good stories, and so they they all kept on trying to convince me that if I love good stories, then I need to read the Harry Potter books. I'm like, that is lame, okay? But they were persistent, and they kept on kind of fighting with me to read these books, and so finally I was like, okay, I'll read the first book, and then I'll I'll, I'll get done with it. I'll think it's dumb. I'll hand it back and say, that's lame. I'm, I'm not reading any of the others, Well, uh, a month later, and all seven books under my belt, um, I loved them. Okay, I and at least they're not the Hunger Games or Fifty Shades of Whatever. Okay, Um, like I I just love that that story. Back before I had ever read Harry Potter, um, my my students um, and I were going on this trip down to New Orleans, and and so we had a meeting the night before to kind of go over the schedule and some of the basic ground rules, and all the students, they weren't paying any attention because they were all focused that night, the last book of the Harry Potter series was coming out, and so they were going to go wait in line at a bookstore for this this book, and then they were going to read the book during the whole trip. That was their plan, and I had an idea. So the next morning, they showed up, and we're getting ready to load the vans, and we prayed, and I kind of went over the schedule with them, and I said, oh, and one more thing. Last night, I got on Wikipedia, and I found out how the Harry Potter series ends. And if anyone breaks any of the rules, I will not hesitate to ruin the entire series for you. I mean, best idea ever, okay? No one broke any of the rules the entire week um, until the final day. And, and the final day, we told the students they, they had to have their bunks cleaned up and everything ready to go before they could go outside. And two of the senior boys, they lied to me and they told me that their bunks were clean, but they really weren't. And when I walked in and I saw kind of the, the dirty bunks, I, I didn't get angry or frustrated. I got really, really excited. I was like, yes, I'm finally going to get to ruin it for somebody. You know, I, I've got a bad heart. Okay, I've come to terms with that. And so I, I just went and I sat on their bed. and I'm just waiting for these two senior boys to walk in. And when they walked in, I looked up and I said, I thought you guys told me that this was going to be clean. And before they had a chance to respond, I said, Harry Potter lets Voldemort kill him. And then Harry Potter comes back to life and destroys Voldemort forever. <laughs> then I smiled real big like this. One of the boys, he, he covers his head with his hands like this. He goes, you're lying, you're lying, you're lying. <laughs> you want to know what the other one did? He cried. Because <laughs> he knew I wasn't lying. So I'm, I'm standing there, uh, and I start to feel bad. He's over in the corner, you know, sobbing because I ruined his childhood pretty much. And so <clears throat> I go over and I, I put my arm around him and I was like... Jeff, I'm sorry. I I shouldn't have done that. It's going to be okay. Ron and Hermione get married. (laughs) I I didn't feel bad anymore. Okay. All right. I mean, and this is for their own good. They're grown 18 year old boys. They, this is for their own good. At least that's what I tell myself. Have you ever had a story like that ruined for you? Like you're watching a movie, uh, maybe like the sixth sense. And you find out at the beginning that Bruce Willis has been dead the whole time. And just so you know, I'm trying to ruin as many stories as I can for you, so, so buckle up and get ready. Around, around the office, we, we watch all these TV shows, like we'll watch the same TV shows, but some people, they, they, they're watching them on DVD, so they're a couple, seri- um, a couple series back, and then others will watch them live, and so the, anytime you walk into a room and you hear them talking about a show, you're like, where in the series are you? you know? Cause, because if, if they're ahead of you, you, you run out, you cover your ears because you don't want to know the ending of the story. If you know the ending of a story, it kind of ruins it. I mean, you'll you'll, you'll still watch it, you'll still play along, but in the end, you you really don't care as much. And and for me, that's why a lot of the times I really struggle with some of the Bible stories, uh, because I grew up around them all the time, and right or or wrong, I I know how they're going to end up, and because I know how they're going to end, I I just don't care as much. And, And that's why it can get really hard for me to relate these stories to my life, because I don't know how the situations and the problems in my life are going to end up. And it seems like in these stories that I know, when Jesus interacts with these people, when he gets done with them, everything gets fixed up. That's how most of them seem to go. But that's one of the reasons I'm really, I, I'm fascinated by the story that, that we've been reading the last couple of weeks about the woman at the well in John four, because you, you've got this woman and spoiler alert, by the time that we're done with this story, We have no idea how or if her personal life gets fixed at all. We've got no way to know and no way to find out. So if you you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, this, this woman, we saw that she keeps on coming to the same well day after day to get water. And then one day she bumps into Jesus and Jesus starts a conversation with her that she thinks is about water. But in the end, it's really about something much bigger than just water. And so Jesus compares this woman to, coming back to this well day after day. And he says, this is like a metaphor for your life. You, you keep on coming back day after day to the same things to try to, to satisfy you, to try to fill you up. And the conversation that he's having with her, uh, he could have that same conversation with any one of us, okay? You, you keep going to the same things to try to fulfill you, to try to um, complete you, to give you value. And, and whether it's a, a relationship or a career, a spore, a paycheck, whatever it is, eventually that well is going to run dry. Every time you go to that well, you're going to feel better for a while, but the next morning you wake up and you're still thirsty. So Jesus is having this conversation with this woman, and in John four thirteen, we read that Jesus answered her. He says, everybody who drinks this water, they're going to be thirsty again we know that Jesus, he's not talking about water anymore. He's saying that anyone who keeps on going to a, a relationship or a fantasy or a substance or whatever to find satisfaction, eventually that well is going to run dry and you're going to feel the same as before. Scott talked about it two weeks ago and he said it perfectly like this. He said, don't try to get from anyone or anything which you can only get from God. If you do, everything will eventually fall apart. And so a little while later, Jesus kind of leans in a little bit harder on the well that this woman is going into for satisfaction. And in verse 16, it says that Jesus told her, go call your husband and then come back. In verse 17, she said, I I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus, he he must have known her answer before she even said it, because here's what the rest of the verse says. Jesus says to her, you're right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man that you now have, he's not your husband. What you have just said, it's quite true. Now, here's the thing. I I, I don't know her story. I don't know why the marriages or the relationships, why they kept on drying up the same way. I mean, maybe she was trying to get something from him that he just couldn't give her. Uh, Maybe he was trying to take something from her that she just didn't have, or, or, or what she did have. It didn't satisfy him anymore. But whatever the reason, he left or or they quit. And then chances are they started over with number two, three, four, five, or or six. And here's one of the questions I want to ask about that story tonight. What story does her relationship tell? What about, um, what story do her relationships tell? I mean, does it tell the, the story of a woman who found deep satisfaction and wholeness from a relationship? Does it tell the story of a woman who found the one she found her soulmate? She found the guy that completed her and then everything magically got better. Does it tell the story of men who learn to care for and love the woman that they're with the same way they care about themselves? I mean, does it even seem like she's happy at all? Because here's the thing. She doesn't in the story. She doesn't tell Jesus anything about the quality of her relationships. But just by reading the story, you've realized something that you don't need anyone else to tell you. you figured it out on your own. And here's what you figured out. You don't get married five times if things are working out for you. I mean, you, you just don't. You didn't need me to tell you that. You didn't need her to tell you that. That's something you just kind of figured out from the story. And that's kind of what good stories do. They don't outright tell us the message that they're trying to get across. But it's kind of implied by the story that's being told. And in in the really good stories, what happens is is you naturally you kind of put yourself in the place of those characters, and you imagine what would I do if if this happened to me. Let me give you an example. How many of you guys have seen The Notebook? Show of hands, guys. Don't be shy. Okay, it's a safe place in here. Not really. Okay, it's not. I'll tell you my thought process. Maybe yours was similar. It's like. She wants to watch this movie. I really don't want to watch this movie, but maybe if I watch this movie with her, I'll get rewarded for it later, okay? And like, at least that's what I was thinking. But by the, by the time the movie ends, like, I was not in the mood for that. By the time it, it, it's ending, the couple's older, and we find out that the wife, she's developed Alzheimer's, and she's in a nursing home. And you see this picture of um, her husband who goes back day after day to visit her, even though she doesn't even recognize him. And every day he goes and he kind of talks with her about all these memories that they've made together, even though he knows that she will never, ever remember those memories herself. And the narrator, he didn't ask this question, obviously, but in the end, I was asking myself a question. It wasn't about the movie anymore. It was about my relationship. If I was that man and my wife Kara was that woman, would I still love her like that even if she didn't remember me? I mean, when you got to the end of the movie, and when you've put yourself in that place and you've asked yourself that question, you kind of cry either way, okay? Because you're, you're sitting next to the person that you're with, and 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 you, you ask yourself that question, and you say, "Well, yeah, I, I would stay with her," or "Yeah, he he would stay with me," and, and you're filled with emotion for the other person, and, and you cry. Or um, the other way is also true, you know. No, I I probably wouldn't stay with him. Or no, he he wouldn't stay with me. And and you cry. It's just for another reason, isn't it? Okay? Um, A marriage, a relationship, it it tells a, a story. And whether it's the notebook, whether it's the woman at the well, whether it's us. So here's my question. What story do our marriages tell? When people look at our marriages, what do they take away for their own lives? And even though I'm talking about marriage right now, if marriage currently isn't a part of, of your life, this could apply to a lot of things, uh, friendship, dating, parenting. They all tell some kind of a story about who we are, what we are, what, what we value. But back on marriage, can I tell you what the common takeaway is for most young adults who have seen marriage in our country? What story they take away? Marriage doesn't work. The... If they do get married, they've got a real slim chance of true happiness. That If they get married and they stay together, chances are the sex isn't going to be great. The great theologian Chris Rock sums it up this way. <laughs> he says, do you want to be single and lonely or married and bored? And those seem like the only two options to them. But where did they learn this? Because it's not something that we we taught them. But what they did is they watched our lives and they saw our marriages and they came to the conclusion for themselves, it just doesn't seem like marriage works. But what if Chris Rock and the people that agree with him, what if they're not painting the whole picture here? I mean, what if there's a third option? What if we could have marriages that that are not only good, but they get better and better over time? And not because they're challenge or conflict-free, but because we went through the challenges and we went through the conflicts together. I mean, what if marriage is meant to be a picture of something much bigger than what it really is? Now, I don't know what Chris Rock is picturing when he thinks about marriage, but, but I can tell you this from just seven years, which is not a long time. Marriage, especially with two followers of Jesus, is anything but boring. I mean, it's just anything but boring. And I wonder if in his mind, the ideal relationship is the relationship where you always feel passionately about the other person, where you can have sex any anytime that you want it, and when you can do whatever you want all the time because this other person, they don't infringe on your freedom at all. But can I tell you what's better than having a certain fuzzy feeling all the time, uh, getting to have sex whenever I want to, or being able to do whatever I want and not think about anybody else? The way that I can look at my wife, Kara, and say there's something deeper about the way that I love you now than when we first got married. And, and the fights and the late night conversations and the frustrations and the move across the country, the kids, the, the surgeries, the loss, they all make me love you more, not less. I think Chris Rock wants to write a one-week box office hit with his relationships I want to write a novel that people are still reading 50 years later. So so what, so what if there's a third option? I mean, what if our marriages, for richer or for poorer, for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, what if they could tell a better story? And what if we actually listen to the one who designed marriage to tell us how it could work better? And to look at what God had in mind when he created marriage, we look all the way back at the, the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve. And right after God creates the first woman, and he places her next to Adam, and then we read this in Genesis 224. He said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And those words hold fast to, it literally means sticks to. So the idea is that the two of them stick together so closely that they become like one flesh, that, that they become connected on such a level that if you were to ever separate them, it wouldn't be clean. It wouldn't let, be like pulling two separate things apart. It would be like tearing one thing in half. And so God says that when we do marriage within his framework, it's going to be more than a piece of paper. It's going to be more than a a social arrangement, more than a commitment between two people. He says that marriage within God's design is going to result in a, a oneness that could not be experienced outside of his design. And that's not saying outside of God's design, you can't have a good relationship. You can't have a successful marriage because you and I know that's just not true. I I know plenty of friends who have nothing to do with God who have really good, solid marriages. But what that means is that without God's involvement and and outside of his design for our relationships, we're going to miss out on a special intimacy, a special oneness that can only be experienced with God's involvement and with his design. And I get really, really frustrated when people, they they talk about God's design for marriage as if it's just a matter of having the right body parts. You know, like God's design for marriage is that he has one of those and she has one of those, you know, or or two of those. Like, as long as that's that, that's what God's design is. But God's design is so much more than that. God's design for marriage, that's just the starting point. His design for marriage is oneness. It's about the quality of the relationship. So what does oneness look like? I could tell you a bunch of different characteristics, maybe ways that we need to do it better or things that we can improve on. But rather than the the guy that's been married all of five minutes tell you how you should do your relationship right, what if I just told you a story, a true story about what oneness looked like? And then you can come up with your own lesson, your own conclusion. You can draw your own implications. Because here's the thing, I don't know that much about marriage. I mean, you could ask my wife, she'll tell you. I don't know that much about marriage. But, but I had a really good picture of it growing up. We've been looking at this um, nursery rhyme, Jack and Jill, for the last couple weeks. Jack and Jill went up a hill to fetch a pail of water. Jack fell down and broke his crown, and Jill came tumbling after. But let me ask you this. What if when Jill fell down, uh, what if when Jack fell down, he, he didn't knock Jill over so that she too came tumbling after? What if Jack fell down and broke his crown not because he was being stupid but because he got really, really sick? What if Jill, when... She saw Jack tumbling down the hill. She voluntarily, without hesitation, jumped down and started tumbling after because she couldn't imagine standing on the top of the hill while Jack was broken at the bottom. This might not make too much sense to you right now, but it it will in a minute. When I was 18, I had just started college, and um, I got a phone call from my mom while I was at school, and she said, Jess, are you in a place that you can talk? And I said, yeah. And, and she said, Jess, your your dad had a bunch of seizures today. And so we drove him to the hospital and they found that he's got a brain tumor. And I just remember locking up and just saying, my dad, my dad. Because, because I look back and nothing really bad had ever happened to somebody that was close to me. I had no category for pain on that level. I mean, in my mind, up until that point, my dad was like, invincible. Okay. Uh, Let me, let me tell you a story to illustrate that a couple years later when I was 23, my dad and I flew, we we flew around the world to to climb Mount Kilimanjaro in Africa. And what you do to climb Mount Kilimanjaro is you spend about five days on the mountain, getting used to the altitude. And then the the final day you make your ascent. You you start about 15,000 feet. You start at midnight and then you hike through the night so that you can watch the sunset at the top, which is right above 19,000 feet. And you get there around seven or eight. And so we took off, and, and the first 2,000 feet were okay, but by the time I got to 17,000 feet, I was not doing well at all, okay? Like, I, I had a giant headache, and I was so dizzy that I could only take 10 steps at a time before I had to sit down and regain my balance. And some people have said, well, you, you shouldn't have kept on going. But I'm like, you don't fly halfway around the world to climb on Mount Kilimanjaro, right? You do it to climb up it. And so um, a friend grabbed my pack, and, and we kept on hiking 10 steps at a time, and we finally made it to the top. And, and when we got there, I didn't take any pictures. I didn't look around. Uh, I just looked at my dad and said, hey, dad, you, you can do whatever you want up here. Um, what I'm going to do, I, I, I just need to take a nap, okay? So I'm going to take a nap, and uh, you, you can go down ahead of me, and in a couple hours, whenever I wake up, I'll, I'll follow you down. And my dad knew that if the altitude was affecting me that bad, uh, like that, that, that if he let me nap up there, it would only get worse. My dad knew that he had to get me down. And so he's like, no, Jess, you got to go down. And I was like, but I don't want to go down. And, and my dad said, well, Jess, and he put his arm around me and he kneeled down, even though he was hurting just as bad as I was. And he pointed to a rock about 200 feet down the path. And he said, hey, Jess, you he see that rock down there? And I was like, yeah, I see it. And he goes, you think you can make it to that rock if I gave you a Jolly Rancher? And this is embarrassing, but I was like, really, a Jolly Rancher? (laughs) I was like, yeah, buddy, a Jolly Rancher. And I was like, okay, I'll do it. And so I hiked down and I get to this rock and I plop down and I was like, this is it. I'm not going any further. And I hold out my hand for my Jolly Rancher and he gave it to me and I popped it in my mouth. And my dad just stood there and waited until I finished. And then he put his arm around me again. He goes, you see that rock about 300 feet down there. And my dad coaxed me down the side of Mount Kilimanjaro with jolly ranchers. Like I was a middle schooler or something. Okay. Like my dad was just an unbelievable father. He, he was a great man. And yet where we were, I, I was looking at my dad in a hospital bed. He was broken and he was fragile and I wasn't used to that. And, the doctors, they immediately did surgery on the brain tumor, and uh, it went great. They came out, and they said that the surgery went perfect. People were saying that it was a miracle, and my dad was pretty much back to normal for like five or six years, which are like some of the most precious years of my life. But about four years ago, my, my dad started acting different. He was getting dizzy all the time, and he would fall over sometimes. We'd be eating meals, and he'd just fall asleep at, at the dinner table he would repeat himself a lot. And we knew that something was wrong and we, we couldn't really place it. And then my dad had another seizure. And we took him back to the um, hospital and the doctors did some tests. And when he came out, he said, the tumor's back. And he showed us a CT scan of my dad's brain and the tumor had just mangled it. And so my brothers and my mom and our family is just kind of sitting there and we all wanted to ask the question, but none of us would. And finally, I was like, Doctor, how much time does he have left? And the doctor said, six months. And about five minutes after he said that, I had to go... uh, I was a youth pastor, and so I had to go to our youth group. We had youth group on Sunday nights. And I was supposed to go uh, to youth group where I would help these students grow in their relationship with God. And I didn't even know if I believed in him anymore. I mean, I... I was sure I didn't like him at the point and I knew I couldn't trust him. And here I was having to give them a talk about how how they could how God could help them with their issues. And what I really wanted to say to them was, hey, you can put your trust in God, but do it at your own risk because I did that and he has let me down. I, I was so broken, but I just faked it because I didn't know what to do. And I went back to the hospital. I was tired and my mom was there. And my mom told me, that while I was gone, that God had told her that he was full, going to fully heal my dad. And to show their faith in that, that they weren't going to do any of the treatments that the doctors recommended. Um, but God didn't tell me that. And I thought it sounded stupid. And I remember praying, God, this plan, whatever this plan is, this plan sucks, Okay. And we took my dad home, and it was weird because he was like 90% himself. And we were like, he's supposed to be dying, but he, he's like 90% back to normal. And then a month went by, and he was 80%. A couple more months, 70, 60. And he kept on getting worse and worse and worse. And I was struggling with two things at the time. The first one was this my dad was my hero. He was the best, smartest, most brilliant man that I knew. I wanted to grow up and be like him. He was one of my best friends. And this new man was not my dad anymore. I mean, he was, but he was not the man that I used to to know and not the man that I used to, to love. And I was really struggling with grieving the man that I lost and trying to love this new man for who he was. And I was just wrestling with that. And the other thing was my mom wasn't doing any of the treatment on my dad. My dad kept on getting worse and I was losing my dad. And I was unbelievably angry with my mom. And I had no idea at the time, like I didn't know I was angry, but it would come out in the way that I talk about her or the comments that I would make. And, Um, I was just furious. In my youth group, we were were doing this series where we were talking about anger at the time. Funny enough, how how God just works that. And the last night I had to talk about forgiveness. And I knew the students in my youth group. I knew almost all of their stories, okay? And I'm not telling, I wasn't telling them that they need to forgive anyone because I know some of the, the things that have been done to them and I'm not telling anyone they need to forgive somebody for that. But I wanted to give them the opportunity If if they wanted to try something different, if they were tired of the way being angry all the time was working out for them, I wanted to give an opportunity for them to experience something better. And we talked about how anger, it's kind of like how how we're holding out a debt. When we're angry with somebody, we're like holding out a debt from somebody else. We feel like they owe us something, whether it's respect, whether it's love, whether it's freedom. But we kind of walk around angry with them because we expect that they should give us something that they're not giving us yet. And so we were talking through that, and and what we did with all the students, we just wanted to help them identify it, and so we gave them these receipts, and and on it, just like it's a receipt that you're waiting to kind of cash in, you're waiting for somebody to pay you back for what's on that receipt, we had them at the top write down who they were angry with. Then in another spot, we had them write down exactly what that person did, and then the final line, we had them write what exactly they wanted to be paid back for how they wanted to be paid back for it. And then at the end of the night, after they walked through and looked at it, we had these stamps by the side of the room where they could stamp paid on it to say that that debt has been paid for. You see, forgiveness isn't just letting something go. Because when I forgive somebody, it hurts me, okay? When you forgive somebody, it hurts you. So what that is, is that's us taking on the pain. It's us making payment for that kind of... on ourselves, and we say, "You don't owe me that anymore." I'm not going to be angry with you because you do not owe me what what I, I think that you owe me anymore. And so, as the students are kind of um, walking through this process, I, I went to the back, and I, I, I was sitting there and. <clears throat> uh, I was just reflecting and, and God like shined this giant light on the way that I've been angry with my mom. And so I, I grabbed a receipt and I made one for myself and I literally keep it around with me in my wallet to this day because there are days that I need to pull it out and look at it and say, she doesn't owe you anymore. You, you forgave her. Uh, uh, my receipt looks like this. The person I feel like owes me that I'm angry with, it's my mom. What she did... She's keeping my dad from getting better. What she owes me is my relationship with my dad the way that it was. And I remember stamping, paid on that, saying, I'm going to try to forgive her. And I remember this old preacher saying that there are going to be times where you feel like you haven't forgiven them, where those feelings of anger still crop up. But forgiveness is not a feeling. Forgiveness is a decision. And I kind of settled with God in my heart. I'm going to try as hard as I possibly can to forgive my mom for what she does. And anytime that I, I feel angry with her, because there are going to be times that I do feel angry, I'll pull this receipt out and I'll look at it and I'll say, you already forgave her. She doesn't owe you anymore." more. I, I carry it around with me to this day. Meanwhile, my dad is deteriorating. He can just repeat the same question over and over. I mean, he can't even keep up a conversation. Um, he was getting to be skin and bones. He couldn't walk. He was laying in a bed. Um, he was a shadow. It got so bad that my mom was feeding him with a spoon, and my, my dad was in diapers. And you see, the strong man who was my hero, who was in diapers, just crushed me. And we knew that then end was getting close. And uh, we were talking with my mom, and my mom asked us not to bring up anything really negative with my dad. Don't talk about death with him because um, uh, of just how it might affect him and how it might make him sad or anything like that. And I remember thinking in my head, Mom, I love you, and because I love you, I'll, I'll do this. But it's going to cost me, okay? It, it's going to cost me ever being able to hear what my dad actually thought about having cancer and how it affected him. It's going gonna, it's gonna to cost me being able to, to have that rich conversation that you get to have with people when they know that the end is near, where they like tell you things they've always wanted to tell you. I'm not going to get to have that conversation with my dad. And lastly, I'm not going to get to say goodbye to him. I'm not going to be able to tell him how much I love him when I know that he, he understands me. And we never got to have those moments. And my dad got worse and worse. And finally, he had a seizure that set him back and they took him to the hospital. And he he was in the hospital for weeks and eventually he wasn't eating well. So they put him in a feeding tube and he wasn't breathing well. And so they put him in a trach. And I I remember looking at my dad and we were in there with our whole family and I remember just looking at him. He had gashes from surgeries that weren't healing. He was being fed by a tube. He was unconscious. He didn't know anything that was happening around him. And I remember the conversation where my, a long time back where my dad said, if I'm ever in a place where I'm laying on a bed, unconscious, unable to do anything for myself, I I would rather be dead than be that. But I knew my mom was in a real difficult place and she didn't understand that anymore. She didn't remember that. And I knew that I'd have to be the one to remind her. And I knew that I'd have to be the one to convince my mom to pull life support from my dad. So I called her and we met at Starbucks one Saturday and we talked. And when we were done talking, um, she went back to the hospital and I went back home and nothing really happened. I didn't know where it was going to go from there. And then that Sunday, my mom called the family, my brothers and um, our wives and everybody up to the hospital and She, we talked and we agreed and we pulled the life support from my dad. And two weeks later, last Halloween, my dad went home and I wish he was still here. He was a brilliant, brilliant pastor. And I had so many questions I want to ask him. He always dreamed that I'd be a teaching pastor, and he never got to see it. My dad knew Jim really well, and he loved Jim, and he was fascinated by this place. I wish my dad was still here. And I think about my story in my life, and I think if it was this hard for a son, I can't imagine what it would be like as a wife. I was having a conversation with my mom about it the other week. Why don't I let her tell you what it's like?
1: Um, It was a Wednesday night. It was the anniversary of the 9-11 bombing. And we were having a um, memorial service at church along with our regular worship service. And as soon as I walked in, a couple of the staff people came up to me. They informed me that Brett had had a seizure, and they had taken him in an ambulance to the hospital, and so they were going to take me there and got to the hospital. I met with the doctor. They said that they had done a CAT scan and that there was a tumor in there, and it was a brain tumor. It didn't click that it was a brain tumor until they said that word, and I was kind of in a hallway, and I said, God, I don't know what I'm going to tell my kids. You know, what can I say at this point? They all just got this piece that Brett was going to be okay, and So we just went on. We knew we had surgeries to do. We knew we had whatever, but he was going to be okay. When Brett started getting worse, different people kept coming up to me, and just out of the blue thing God told me he was going to heal Brett. And God had told me that, too. But he just kept getting worse and worse, and um, we got to the point where I had to put him into diapers. Um. We kept going. We had physical therapists coming in and helping us with the um, being able to stand and walk and to keep the muscle tone so he can push himself in and out of a wheelchair once we finally started doing wheelchairs for long distances. Then we went into wheelchairs constantly. We have a picture in the house where he is so proud because he had dipped his own french fry and ketchup one day and he was holding it up. And I still have that picture and it's... Uh, Special picture, because I know how proud he was that day. And he just kept going worse and worse until he was just laying in bed. And um, I would have to roll him over because he was getting bed sores. And then we um, took him to the doctor finally for one of our last checkups. And he said, you know, it was just too hard on Brett to take him all the way there. And it was time to call hospice. And he just turned into skin and bones, slowly, slowly, slowly. He got to the point where um, we were doing the handicap bus to get him to church in his wheelchair. And then we couldn't even do that anymore. I had to take a diaper bag for my husband. And at that point, he was not remembering it enough, which was good, because it would have humiliated him. Those were the vows. It was for better or for worse, and for richer or for poorer. His sickness... In hell till death do us part. I stayed with Brett because I promised him I would. I was not gonna send him into the hospital and have somebody else take care of him. When he went to the hospital, I moved in with him. We were there for two months, and we were in ICU for many weeks. And. um we just, once we get out of ICU, we get to go to a floor. And then while we were up there, we were doing fine. And he was talking and communicating, working on feeding himself. And then he'd have some little seizures again. And one seizure just really set him back really bad. And we went back down to the ICU. And while we were down there, he just opened his eyes. And they were wide. And he just looked across the ceiling back and forth. And then all of a sudden, he was done. And he just closed his eyes and went back to sleep. And then later on, his breathing just kept getting shallower and shallower. And finally, at four ten, he took his last breath. And what I realized is there is no no sound louder than the void after a last breath. So they unhooked all of the monitors, and I had to call my sons and tell them that their daddy died. He was my best friend. I was with him longer than I was without him. My whole life has changed. Everything reminds me of him. Every single thing. Once I realized that Brett was not coming back, it really messed up my relationship with God. It was because how could I trust him? I had trusted him with my husband's life. And he he dumped on me. And so this is something I still do struggle with. I'm getting to know God again and trying to put away my expectations of who I thought He was. I'm getting there. I'm not there yet, but I'm getting there.
0: Now, now I'm not saying that my parents did it perfect or we should all be like them or anything like that. Um, But the band just played this song about how when you see true love, when you see pure love, it, it can almost make you believe in something bigger. I remember watching my mom as she was taking care of my dad when my dad was at his weakest, most helpless. He couldn't do anything for himself. He couldn't even clean up after himself. Didn't remember anymore. And when I watched the way that she loved him, when I look back, one of the things that I think... Is that kind of love is just a fraction of the way that God loves us. And when I think about that, I just think of how grateful I am for the way that He cares for me, for the way that he sits by me he doesn't leave me, for the way that he cleans up after me, for the way that He loves me. So what story is your marriage telling? What story is your relationship telling? What story is your life telling? And what story could your life tell if you began to let God start writing your story? Jesus ran into this woman at the well and he told her, he said, I could become in you like a a stream of living water that wells up to, to eternal life, to satisfying life, to a better life. I could be that in you. Jesus tells us if if we'll just let him, he could write us a better story. So will we let him? Let's pray. God, we... God, I'm I'm blown away by the way that you love us. God, I, I just am. So I thank you for the pictures of people... That their love just gives us a a small glimpse of what your love for us looks like and god I thank you for the way that you stick by me and you carry me through moments when i'm not even sure I like you anymore You're so patient with me. You're so good to me god help We want to live better stories god would you Would you help us would you begin writing better stories for us? We we love you. We have so many reasons to be grateful To you for who you are and for what you've done for us We love you. It's your name we pray. Amen.